HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by 100 Bogart Street, the brand new co-working space in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Learn more at 100bogart.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Good afternoon, and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, on Heritage Radio Network. One of the best things about this podcast is that it gives me a platform to profile leaders in the food movement, working to create a healthier, more sustainable, and more just food system. And I'm very pleased today that it has brought one such person, Jillian Hyshaw, to the show. Jillian is the founding director of Farms, a nonprofit located in the South that provides legal services to small farmers and hunger relief services in their community. Her work has largely focused on the aging challenges farmers face, many of which go overlooked and underreported. We'll be discussing what those issues are, the impact she and her organization have had to date, and what she will be advocating for in the upcoming Farm Bill. Jillian, welcome to Eating Matters. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Okay, so before we kind of get into what the those issues, um, you know, the specifics of how you've been helping um, farmers over the past um, decade or so, can you give us a little bit uh, of background um, in terms of your professional background before you started farms? Sure. Um, I'm originally from Kansas City, Missouri, and um, I have a degree in biology, and then I also have a law degree and a legal master's in agricultural law from University of Arkansas in Fayetteville. And um, after I finished up at Arkansas the past 12 years, my career has focused on public service in um, the areas of agriculture and environmental issues. So I... Once I got out of law school, I moved back home to Kansas City, and I started a youth um, enrichment program focused 
focusing on educating young African-American males in my old neighborhood about ag science and mm-hmm. ecology. And then um, after that, um, I moved on and worked for a local environmental nonprofit doing um, water quality issues in low-income communities. And then after that, I moved to D.C. and I worked for USDA um, in the Office of Civil Rights. Mm -hmm. And after that, the past seven years, I've kind of been on my own independent consulting and and then um, starting farms in 2013. So a lot... a deep background in these issues. And it sounds like you went in to get your law degree with the intention of working in agriculture. How do you decide um, to do that? I feel like there, in my opinion, there's not enough um, lawyers working in the food space. And it seems like you were on the um, forefront of that, of that movement. So what made you decide to um, pursue like a, you know, a, a law degree with a focus on agriculture? Right. Um, Well, I thought that I uh, wanted to do the whole med school thing, but, or um, field research. (laughs) You're like, oh no, I'll become a lawyer um, instead. (laughs) Like that. (laughs) Yeah, I I just decided against that. Um, And so, but I knew that my family had a history in in farming, Mm -hmm. but my grandfather really didn't talk about it a lot and how we lost the land. But the older I got, the more. I realized the challenges with being a small farmer, and so I just garnered an interest, and I wanted to um, basically provide services to specifically to small farmers so that they wouldn't lose the land or the farm, rather, like we did um, in my own family. Mm-hmm. Um, and what does FARM stand for, the organization that you founded? Um, yeah, Family Agriculture Resource Management Services. Okay. And when, and you said you started that seven years ago? Well, I started in 2013, but I've been working kind of independent on my own um, for the past seven years. Mm -hmm. And what made you decide to start this organization? I just, I realized that there was a need Mm -hmm. and um, especially with farmers needing legal services and just realizing that it's an aging population. I mean, just based on the 2012 census, the average age of the farmer across demographics was, um, I believe, 60 and older. Mm-hmm. But with the 2017 census coming out, it, it's projected to be 65 and, and older. So it's definitely um, an aging population. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I want to talk about the you know demographics and the future of farming a little bit later in the show but um before we get into that i think you know it would be helpful if you can kind of um give like some broad stroke basics uh, on statistics um on farmers in the u.s so um you know you talked about the the average age now i'm curious uh in terms of you know just you know more information like are the majority of farmers in this country do they farm big farms or small farms? Um, do they tend to own their land? Um, what are the, like, the demographics look like? Is it more, um, more? I'm assuming, more men farm than women? Can you, um, you know, what is the diversity like in farming, in the farming community today? Can you kind of just give us a, a broad strokes? 
Yeah, well, I, I, I don't know if I can... <laughs> yeah, I threw, I threw that, like, a lot of... That's a lot of questions all at once. I know that the, the average um, age, again, is 65, you know, 60. And then I, based on the 2012 USDA census, if I'm not mistaken, 30% um, of the operators are um, women farmers. Mm-hmm. And um, I know that in the African-American community... According to the USDA census, we own less than a million acres when in the early 1900s we owned upwards to 14 to 15 million acres. And that in the African-American community, we lose 30,000 acres in land ownership per year. And that's the reason why I titled our website Mm 30,000acres.org. And um, it, you know, varies in regards to reasoning, but um, that's the amount of land loss. I know that within the past decade, over 140,000 farms have went out of business or consolidated, um, and that's just across the board. Um, wow. I know that um, I believe like over 90% of U.S. farms are considered small, mm-hmm. and I think what USDA considers small it's either 250 acres or less or 1,000 acres or less. I, I haven't looked lately. But, mm-hmm. um, but the majority of, of farms in the U.S. are small, but the, the, the majority of money, corporate farms, um, receive the majority of ag um, revenue in this country. That's... So I think like over 70% of all ag revenue is from corporate um, ag conglomerate farms. So that is surprising that um, that ninety percent of farms are you know around that number are small family farms. I didn't realize that 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 they had such a large percentage. Um, yeah. Wow. Okay. So and then in terms of your work with farms, by the way, th- I think you pretty much answered all the questions. So great, <laughs> great that I threw at you. Great job. <laughs> um, um, in terms of the work that you do at farms, do, does your work mostly um, focus around people of color, um, or do you represent, um, you know, is it just kind of everybody in the areas that you work? Um, initially, it was primarily focused on communities of color, but um, since the need has expanded, mm-hmm. uh, since we started, it's um, it's kind of across the board. So, but the main demographic, they have to be small farmers located in a high poverty, high unemployment um, rural area mm-hmm. and um, primarily um, older, 65 and, and older. And you work across seven states, is that right? Your organization does? Yes. So we work in Arkansas, Alabama, Georgia, Tennessee, Mississippi, South and North Carolina. And why these states in particular? Why the focus on the South? Well, I so I moved down here purposefully to start farms because the South and Southeast um, have the the most um, population as far as small farms. Oh, hmm. and so at home, like in Missouri and Kansas, Iowa, it's mostly large commodity farms, um, right? As well as um, you know the West California. It's large produce farms and things of that nature, but the South and Southeast have the highest number of small farm operators. 
All right. Wow. Um, so you, um, what, so, okay. So I think it's, let's, let's get into the type of, of services, legal services you provide in these areas. What are some of the major issues that you have come across in your work with these small farmers? So primarily, um, a lot of estate planning issues where, um, the heir's property will be created because the primary, um, landowner's landholders, sorry, um, passed away without a will. Mm-hmm. So say, for example, you have a married couple and they have 10 kids and um, they pass away without a will. Well, when you pass away without a will, the state takes over your estate distribution. And so the 10 kids will be the the primary heirs of the land or, you know, all of their parents' assets. And they would have to share equally amongst all of the 10. And so you have 10 owners owning this 100-acre tract of land, and then oftentimes, several generations later, you have upwards to 200, 300 heirs owning, you know, this 100-acre farm. Mm-hmm. And if one uh, relative sells to a third party, like a developer quite often, then that developer co- becomes kind of part of the family, and he can force the sale of the remaining heirs in what's called a court partition sale. And so usually um, the state or the the court rather will will accept this request and force the sale and sell the land below market value. And then that developer will buy the, the land at a low cost. I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit confused. Why, how, how does this, okay, so first of all, this is, this is for primarily for families where there is no specified will in terms of like the, yes. okay. And is that, does that represent, is that like most people's path or is this sort of like the exception? No, I mean, so the, the reason why, particularly in the black community, we lose 30,000 acres is because of lack of estate planning, mm-hmm. because of the lack of um, protections. Okay. And these type, this particular type of sale and what's called a court partition sale. Okay. So, again, um, if you die without a will, yep. then the, the state takes over your distribution, and usually if it's your parents... And, you know, you have kids and, you know, they're, they're the primary heirs mm-hmm. of your assets. Okay. But when you have multiple children and you pass away without a will, then, then all of the assets are shared equally amongst the children. Right. And so then- if you have, you know, shared ownership, if one, if one of the children sells to an outsider like a developer... That's how they get in. Then that... That, yes, yeah. that developer can then force the sale of the remaining, you know, nine children. How do they do that? By by trying to buy them out at a, at a higher cost or? No, they'll go to the court and they'll, they'll request the court partition sale. They'll say, well, you know, there's shared ownership here. There's numerous heirs and we can't get a bank loan because when you... When you go to apply for a bank loan, mm-hmm. the ownership has to be either in a married couple's name or, you know, a solo person's name or in an LLC. Okay. And when you have shared ownership amongst, you know, numerous heirs, family members, you can't qualify for a bank loan. You can't qualify for USDA programming. Huh. And so you really can't do much with the land. 
Right. And it's stagnant. And so they'll argue, well, you know, this is um, creating, you know, a, a suppression on the commerce of this land. And um, because of it, we need to force the sale. Even though the farm so could that, be, even though the farm could have been, you know, operating totally fine in terms of like, yeah. you know, making enough money. It was just this, this yeah. le- letting this one person in can totally disrupt everything. Yeah, it's so- wow. Um, and do you provide services to help farmers with estate planning before they, they pass away? Is that a big part of, of your job? Yes. Yes. So I, I try to get farmers before they pass away in their older, you know, later years to just make sure that they have a will or, you know, things like that. And so we work in seven states, but I'm not licensed in all of these states. So I have a network of attorneys that I work with to get all of the legal services covered. And, um, and is this, this estate planning, these issues represent the bulk of the work that you do? Or are there other major um, issues that, that Yeah, there's definitely asked? other issues. Um, there's also um, Medicaid liens, and so that's definitely been a problem mm-hmm. um, that I'm finding more and more as farmers get older and they, you know, transition to qualifying for Medicaid and moving into the nursing home Okay, is that um, people, some people really don't realize that when you qualify for Medicaid and you're a Medicaid recipient, that opens up your assets to um, a lien. And so if you qualify for Medicaid and you are now residing in the nursing home and you have an outstanding debt, well, the nursing home has the authority under the federal um, program to put a, a lien on your house or your farmland. Just for, for take, taking Medicaid or for being a beneficiary of Medicaid services? Yes. Oh. Because technically it's considered, you know, a low, you know, low income public assistance program. Mm-hmm. And so it was primarily designed for people that were low income that could not afford, you know, the um, the living expenses cost of, of a nursing home or, or things like that. And so... When you qualify for Medicaid, the, the federal government considers you to be of low income right. and not to have a lot of assets. And so um, when you do have an outstanding debt and you can't pay the nursing home costs, then the nursing home will look for assets that will cover those costs. Mm-hmm. And if they find that a house is in your name, a land is in your name, they can put, there's two types of lien. There's a pre-death lien, and then there's a post, post-death post lien. And the pre-death lien will put a lien on your assets while you're still living. And so um, it varies with, you know, between each state. And we are drafting a, just kind of a short um, booklet on educating people about Medicaid liens that will be coming out at the end of April. Mm-hmm. But, um, but yeah, we're definitely seeing more cases of land being taken through, through um, Medicaid liens. And this is what, what, so if the farmer is in, say, a nursing home, what is happening with their land while they're there? Is it passed down to a, a next generation or does it typically, um, is it, you know, producing any income? 
Um, it just it varies um, with each case. Mm-hmm. So, the like there's a case um, in North Carolina where a lien was placed on the farm, but the farmer was residing in the nursing home and he didn't have any heirs to to basically transfer the land to to take it out of his name. Mm-hmm. And so, because of that, it was the land was still in his name and the nursing home put a lien on the land and so he's no longer the owner of that farm Mm -hmm. and the farm had been in the family for several generations and so because of it um, it just depends on the case now when there are heirs living heirs and we're drafting the will oftentimes we find it hard to the family are the landowners find it hard who to give it to because a lot of their children don't want a farm right. and they don't want any type of responsibilities related to the farm. Mm-hmm. And so often they'll give it to a cousin, they'll give it to an aunt um, because their children, they really don't want any parts of the farm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what about, um, in terms of, um, the next generation of farmers. Uh, there was a recent article that came out um, saying that, um, let's see, it was in New Food Economy, um, and it was a piece by Nathan Rosenberg and Clay East uh, titled, Sorry, Pretty Much Everyone, Young Farmers Are the Least Diverse and Smallest Group of Farmers in the Country, um, which you know, the, the, the title is pretty self-explanatory um, about what the article is about. But I'm wondering if, you know, in light of what you just said, that there is not a lot of interest in the next generation in taking over a family farm. Um, if this is something that you have seen, this trend of, um, you know, there not being a lot of young farmers interested in going into the field. And those who are, are predominantly uh, white uh, males, actually, is what this um you know, this article talks about who, who, by the way, largely farm commercial, like industrialized farms. Is this something, is this a trend that you have seen reflected in your um, everyday, like professional work experience? Yes, I, I, I do. I, I definitely see it on a weekly basis that um, just first to not focus on demographics, but I see more interest in urban farming than rural. Mm-hmm. So people, I, I find that people are more interested in urban farming, which is in the city. You know, it's not really in the sticks, and they have access to different, you know, types of amenities and infrastructure and resource support. But um, when it comes to rural traditional farming, um, definitely see more um, transition farm succession plans within white um, family farms. And then the kids adopting the farm and the practices as opposed to farmers of color. Mm-hmm. And this is something, I mean, I, this was, I, you know, I think the article why is also titled like, sorry, sorry. I mean, I think that this was, it's something that um, was surprising for me at least to read because there's been a lot of like press and attention um, over the past few years both by major news outlets and also this article argues like a um, kind of like a misinterpretation of statistics coming out of the USDA that was showing that like there, you know, 
there is an uptick in young farmers going into the field um, or young people going into the farming and industry. And of those young people, a great and rising majority of them are women and um, people from historically marginalized communities. So this was uh, a bit of a put like a bit of a damper on what I thought was actually happening. Um, well, I, I think it just varies. I mean, I, you know, I, I can't draw, you know, brushstroke or whatever you yeah, want to say. Yeah, um, it's really hard. Mass generalizations. But, um, <laughs> but just from my perspective, I see more white males, you know, continuing to dominate the industry um, as opposed to any other demographic um, mm-hmm. because it's it's kind of like a seamless transition you know, they of who's currently farming. A, yeah, yeah. I mean, they you 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 just continue the tradition of you go you attend a land grant institution. You know, North Carolina State. You know, you know whatever Kansas State, and then you know, you know, you get a degree in agronomy, and then you know you go back to the farm, knowing that you have a farm to, you know, to, to go, go back to, mm-hmm. and that you'll run. Um, so I think that that also you know, in lies the the numbers here. Yeah. That there's you know, that that'll always be the case. And then um then you have, you know, various other uh groups that, you know, they want they want a farm but, you know, they want to stay near the city. Mm-hmm. And then you also have groups I mean, overall land prices are up, you know, past decade. And it, it's expensive to to buy land right. to also qualify for a loan and you know things of this nature. And so, farming is very expensive, mm-hmm. um, and it's definitely not for the faint of heart. And as input costs go up, and when I say input, I mean fertilizer, seed, um, fuel, labor, uh, crop insurance rates. You know all of these things, and that's just to name a few mm-hmm. equipment. Um, you know, that all of that is taken into consideration and it's just really hard to, um, to break to in, kind of break, mm-hmm. to break into, into the industry. And especially, you know, when you are a person of color and, you know, you don't have a lot of, um, resources to start out with. Mm-hmm. Um, part of the work that you have done um, with farms revolves around civil rights matters, and it seems like this was something that you um, have done previously at the USDA as well. Can you tell us a little bit more about um, what some of these what some of these issues have been that you've worked on? Yeah, so I had the opportunity when I left USDA to work on the Keeps Eagle. Um, class action settlement, which was the Native American class action uh, suit filed against USDA, I believe, in 99 or 2000. And um, I also had the opportunity to work a little bit on Pigford, which is the Black Farmers Lawsuit. And just, um, it was full circle for me. I, I was blessed to have that opportunity because I had read these cases and studied these cases in law school um, during my LLM year, and to, you know, now help with the settlement process was definitely, um, you know, an, an eye-opening experience. But it, it, it's definitely still prevalent, discrimination. Mm-hmm. Um, 
it particularly, of course, in um, communities of color and then also with, with lady farmers in that it's just, um, just blatant. It's just still blatant um, with, you know, having cases where people's livestock has been poisoned in the past um, by their by their white landowner or really? um oh my you know God. just discrimination within USDA um that was well documented in in the class action um suit um it just you know people not paying the farmer on time and or if they do pay the farmer it, it's below market price or you know so just various things and so um I see it not only with farmers of color, but also um, with women um, Mm -hmm. farmers as well. So it's definitely still an issue. Wow. Um, What are some of the... what are some of the things in in the farm bill that you're looking... I mean, these are are a lot of really heavy issues um, that, you know, they're awful. Like, and, and, and we have an opportunity potentially to, um, you know, move the needle on some of these, some of these issues. Are there things in particular that you're looking to accomplish from an advocacy perspective in uh, the 2008 farm bill? Yeah. Um, I definitely want to see the adoption of the USDA's, um, proposed provision. I, I can't think of the title right now. Mm -hmm. Um, but basically, there's just been um, a need for more um, antitrust enforcement with the Packard and Stockyards provisions mm-hmm. within USDA, and the Obama administration was addressing that with um, with various uh, provisions that they had drafted for five years and taken over 50,000 public comments towards, and it was supposed to go into effect. Um, it was either um, this month or, or in September. So within the past six months, it was supposed to go into effect. But um, the new administration um, stalled it initially, and then they, they decided that they weren't going to move forward in making those provisions effective. And, and so, what would they have done? They would have prevented further consolidation within the agriculture industry? Somewhat, but but it was primarily focused on um, also kind of making the the playing field even in the poultry industry specifically oh, with the, um, with, with the farmers um, with farmers being paid with poultry they're paid based upon their weight mm-hmm. and so um, you know oftentimes farmers would um, be concerned about the weight of the chicken and them not getting a fair price based on the weight. And the weight would be um, determined by, by the integrator. Yeah. And so it's the, it's the gypsa, the gypsa rules, which um, we covered actually uh, like one of our first episodes of the season. Um, yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yes. So, so that and was so, one to prevent discrimination um, amongst the, the big, you know, poultry, uh, producers, packers. Right. Um, right, exactly. And so, but it would, it would also, you know, help in, in other industries like commodities and things like that. But it would just give more provisions to the small farmer 
mm-hmm. um, and just the farmer in general, um, to basically have some type of, I don't know, fair play in system or um, legal recourse to protect them mm-hmm. in regards to if they, you know, file a complaint with GIPSA or the Packard and Stock, under the Packard and Stockyards Act, that, you know, there's no retaliation there and things of that nature, and they're not blacklisted um, within the industry right. to, to prevent them from growing. And so things like that. And then also I would like to see um, more coverage in regards to aging services. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, really focusing on, on Medicaid liens and um, making certain, certain exemptions for, for small farmers that are, that are low-income. Um, and, you know, in writing the, the booklet that I'm writing right now, I do find that some states like Alabama have exempted farms, small farmers, mm-hmm. from Medicaid liens. And so there are some state protections in that. Um, but I would really love to see more of those protections seen on a, on a federal level. All right. Um, and then, yeah, sorry, go on. I'm sorry. And then also um, with with um, the NAP insurance, which is insurance for socially disadvantaged farmers, um, I would like to see reform in that because a lot there's been a lot of um, issues with farmers not having their crop insurance claims um, fulfilled by USDA and just making sure that, you know, things are in line there and that the, the crop insurance continues. And then there's also been new um, requirements put in place where the farmers have to have irrigation to qualify for NAP. Mm-hmm. But it's hard for a, a farmer to qualify for irrigation when oftentimes the farmer is renting land or leasing land. And you really can't make those types of improvements on someone else's land. Right. And so when you're leasing land or renting land, which is often the case, particularly for um, farmers of color, it's very difficult for them to qualify for this this insurance, even though it's specific for um, socially disadvantaged farmers or, or farmers of color. And so those... Um, types of things also need to be reformed and changed within within um, the industry. Um, okay, so I um, we need to take a really quick um, commercial break, but um, when we get back, I want to continue talking about um, these issues, and, and I want to end on a bit of a bright spot, which is the work that you're doing um, to fight food insecurity in these farmers' communities. Um, so, okay, great. <laughs> so stay tuned. One Hundred Bogart Street is finally open and ready for Bushwick. One Hundred Bogart is a brand new, state-of-the-art co-working space that provides turnkey workspaces, including open layout desks, meeting spaces, and furnished private offices. Members have access to top-notch amenities such as custom furniture, high-speed internet, spacious kitchenettes with coffee and tea, printers, scanners, and much more. Alongside their professional work environment, 100 Bogart also provides exclusive educational programming for any curious entrepreneur. Heritage Radio Network has made their new office home at 100 Bogart and will host many events there in the future. 
For more information about their co-working space, visit 100bogart.com and become a member to network, create, and educate. And we're back on Eating Matters, where today I'm speaking with Jillian Hyshaw, founding director of Farms, a nonprofit located in the South that provides legal services to small farmers and hunger relief services in the farmers community, which is what we're going to talk about in just one minute. But before we get into the... the, the more optimistic part of the of, of uh, the episode, I do have a question for you that I wanted to ask earlier, Jillian, and that is with regard to the mental health of farmers. So, um, a lot of your work focuses on, you know, I mean, these h- helping farmers with these really, um, really challenging uh, situations they find themselves in, and. And uh, it seems like a lot of these farmers don't have um, a lot of support, especially in, in the legal services realm, which, which is a, a gap you help to, to fill. But, um, you know, when we're talking about like land foreclosures and, and not having anyone to pass the land on to, I imagine that, um, you know, mental health is a real is a is a challenge um, in this community, especially in the aging population. Um, and this was something that we've you know, that was talked about recently in a Times article um, just this past week, I believe, that that discussed just how prevalent, um, you know, mental health issues were. This issue, this article, this um, specific article talked about suicide rates in New York State um, because the uh, milk, the, the dairy industry has really nosedived and New York State is the thir- third largest milk producing state uh, in the U.S. But I'm wondering if like mental health issues is something that you've seen throughout your work in the, in the past, um, you know, decade or so. That was, by the way, sorry, that was a really long winded question. <laughs> I don't know if you got that. Oh no, no, I, I got, yeah, I definitely, um, I definitely, that was another thing that I was going to bring up is that there needs to be, um, funding for, um, risk assessment or mental health, um, services, which initially was funded in, um, 1985 during the farm crisis. Mm-hmm. And within six months, there was a drastic drop in suicide. But, um, since the 08, and 2012 Farm Bill, these services haven't been funded. Mm-hmm. And so um, the rate in suicide has definitely um, skyrocketed. And the CDC did a study in 2016, 2017, and they found that um, farm suicide surpasses military um, veteran suicide rates. Wow. And so this is definitely a not even a national, but a, a international epidemic. Um, in India and in Australia, farmers are committing suicide at high rates as well. And so because of it, I definitely um, see a need for mental mental health. Yeah. Because oftentimes, you know, I get calls from farmers that are really stressed out and just providing them encouragement and just listening definitely helps. And yeah. it puts things you know, kind of at ease and perspective. And so just talking to someone um, is very therapeutic. And these services are definitely needed because farming is a high-stress job. That's also something that the study that the CDC conducted um, realized, that it's very high-stress. Yep. And so... um, 
So, yeah, so definitely, definitely um, I'm thinking that, you know, as the the rate, I, I just attended a conference in California, and it focused on food and faith, and it focused on the fact that um, the number of parishioners in churches is, are going down and closes and churches are closing their doors at a rapid rate. And they, the churches want to, they own all this land, mm-hmm. and they need to find, you know, someone to use it. And so they're, they're doing more outreach and collaborating with, with young farmers to connect the young farmers to, to the church land to farm it. And we have found that, you know, as that grows, that parishioners are, are visiting the churches more. And so these are things that I definitely propose. And mm-hmm. then I also propose that, you know, the pastors that that are of these churches that are retiring, that are in these rural areas, get paid by USDA to, I don't know, give some type of counseling or pastoral care to, um, to these farmers that are in their area. And so these are things that I definitely think need to be on the trajectory moving forward into the 28 Farm Bill. Absolutely. Um, okay, so we have, I have one one more minute, but I want to um, get into two quick questions. And the first is, um, I really want to know about this um, farm to food bank program you created. So what is the concept? Uh, how does it work? And how much food have you donated so far? Because it seems to be yeah, a, another so, core tenant of, of, of the work that you've done. Yes. Yeah, so um, basically, the concept is that we procure produce from the farmer, we pay them a small stipend, and um, then we donate it to uh, hunger relief agencies. So that includes homeless shelters, child and elder care centers, as well as food pantries, food banks. So over the past four years in our seven-state region, we've donated over 220,000 pounds wow. of fresh produce to, um, to those different types of entities, generating over 350,000 meal servings. So... Um, definitely have made an impact in food insecurity. And the majority of our donations, about 80 to 85 percent, are donated in high poverty rural areas, and then 15 um, percent in um, metro areas in the south and southeast. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. And yes. h- how do you get the funding to, to buy the food? Primarily through grant um, support and donor support. So we've gotten funding from Farm Aid, from USDA, just to do the planning side of things, mm-hmm. um, from Cliff Bar, which has been a really great supporter, um, as well as um, New Belgium Brewery. Um, oh, that's wonderful. Million Dollar Roundtable, um, Whole Foods, uh, and, you know, various other, other entities. Oh, that's great. Um, I love that. I love that mission. Um, okay, so last question, uh, future plans for the organization. Do you want to expand to other geographic regions or uh, what's on the horizon? Yeah, I definitely want to continue to expand and become a more national organization as opposed to a regional mm-hmm. and want to add more staff. Um, we definitely want to diversify our funding model and um, add on a for-profit model to just not depend on grant um, funds, 
completely and have more of a sustainable income coming in. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, I wish you the best of luck with that. And I want to thank you again so much for coming on the show and talking about all of these really, really important issues and the incredible work that you're doing. Well, thank you so much. And if your audience wants to learn more about um, farms, please go to 30,000acres.org. That's numbers, not not mm-hmm. words. Mm-hmm. And then um, you can also follow us on um, Twitter, which is farms30,000, and um, Facebook. And then also um, I have a website, jillianheitshaw.com, to learn more because I also consult on the side as well and and do speaking engagements. Great. All right. We'll we'll leave it there, Jillian. Thank you so much for joining me today. Great. Thank you so much. (laughs) I want to give a big thanks to our sponsors for their generous support, as well as our engineer, Vitor Hirsch. Show music is by Tim Archer. All episodes of Eating Matters are available on the Heritage Radio Network website or as a podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe and leave me a comment. Let me know what you think. I'm Jenna Liu, and thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. <laughs>